0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: I think it's one of the only books that talks about these big freshwater fish on a global scale, and and we really tried to tell the whole story from from beginning to end. It starts in the Mekong, where I started my work, and then we go through the US into Europe, through Asia, Africa. So it's a it, it's a global uh, adventure and that's one of the reasons that it that it took such a long time to write. It wasn't a you know just sit down and um, hang it out. We we were going out in the field and we were taking trips as we
2: were as we were writing. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text you can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response but if you prefer to email you can send that to podcast at saltwater that's a dedicated email address just for the show if you like this show you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it And subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is TomRolandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done both the how-to tuesdays the full links and the physical fridays they all live on tom and the social media is tom underscore roland r-o-w-l-a-n-d on instagram or you can go to our big account saltwater underscore experience i hope to hear from you soon so now let's get on to today's show
1: I'm Zeb Hogan, author of Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish, and I'm on Tom Rowland's podcast. All right, Zeb, how
2: you doing, man? Good, glad to be with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. You got a new book out, huh?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's coming out in April uh, called Chasing Giants in Search for the World's Largest Freshwater Fish, all about uh, trying to figure out, find and figure out... uh, which kind of fish is the world's largest in freshwater?
2: <laughs> Have you figured it out yet?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> it took a long time. So the, the, the book starts with the catch of a 646-pound Mekong giant catfish mm-hmm. in northern Thailand. <laughs> and that was in 2005. I was working with a fisherman there, part of my uh, PhD dissertation, and the fisherman caught this 646-pound fish and i was there uh the fish ended up being being killed and sold for food Uh, and i just asked kind of a question that i thought i'd be able to find a simple answer to which is what is the world's largest freshwater fish and it turned out to be a more uh interesting and complicated question than i than i thought
2: (laughs) well i guess there's what's the definition of a fish i guess you've got these giant freshwater stingrays you've got other big catfish, you've got all kinds of other things. You've got big bull sharks that go from the saltwater into freshwater. I mean, it's, it is pretty complicated. What were the uh, the challenges of, of trying to figure this out?
1: Yeah, I think, one. so I started out, sort of just got online like anyone would, uh, started Googling it, and what I found pretty quickly was that there were a lot of records or a lot of claims of the world's largest freshwater fish. And so one of the the, the claims that was true was the uh, claims of very large beluga sturgeon in europe and in russia and so those those beluga sturgeon can get a couple thousand pounds but they move from salt to fresh water mm-hmm. so for my work i wanted to focus on fish that were exclusively exclusively in fresh water and uh so there were a lot of claims of big fish everywhere i sort of realized pretty early on that i was gonna have to go to these locations Talk with local scientists, talk with local fishermen, get out on the river myself and actually see these fish uh, with my own eyes. Because there are a lot of stories out there that were were, were exaggeration, you know, yeah. fish, fishermen like to exaggerate. So there are a lot of stories out there and I sort of had to figure out, OK, which of these stories are, are based on the truth and which are tall tales.
2: Right, and then of course, uh, like myths, like urban myths and stuff like that. Oh, there was a catfish that ate somebody, you know, like years and years and years ago, and then that story gets embellished. There's, I don't know, cave drawings and all kinds of things of this giant thing, which maybe it was big, I don't know. Yeah. But that is what well, every it every, region, <laughs> every region has
1: stories about big fish, big mythical fish. Uh huh. But they're probably, most of them are probably based on something that was really in in the water.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so was this uh, was this question and this pursuit of, uh, of finding the world's largest freshwater fish, did that lead you to the show, Monster Fish?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I've uh, been a research professor at the University of Nevada in Reno since 2005. That was about the same time that that fish was caught, the same time that I asked this question that I thought was going to have a simple answer and is, has basically turned into my, my research program at the university. Oh, cool. And so in two, we filmed the first episode of Monster Fish with National Geographic in 2007. And uh, we filmed right up until COVID. And uh, we haven't filmed since COVID, but I think we're going to start filming again uh,
2: later this year. Wow. How many episodes would you do a year? It, it really
1: depended. Uh, so we, the first year we did two the year after that, we did four. Then we did six. Uh, I think the most we ever did in a year was seven shows and the least was one or two. So it, it really varied uh, the shows. I was, um, you know, trying to also had a job at the university. The shows, I don't know the, what format uh, you use for your programs in terms of the amount of time, but for the shows that that we did, Monster Fish shows, they took between two and three weeks to film, yeah. so quite a bit of time.
2: That's what I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that because I've been doing television, you know, fishing television for eighteen years now, and uh, our shows are twenty two minutes and thirty seconds, and we'll film twelve episodes or sometimes some years or thirteen episodes, but mostly the average is twelve episodes a year, and um, and, and we do not take two weeks to to do the show but i know that like national geographic discovery channel different shows different networks have uh, obviously different budgets and different um criteria for what you're doing so can you tell me like why uh, I'm, I'm super curious and of of like how many people you take on something like that and why it takes you know two to three weeks to film a show are they hour-long shows
1: they're forty eight minutes, so okay. they fit in an hour. You right. know, with commercials and stuff. And so, I'll give you an example: the show we filmed in Mongolia on on giant trout, fly fishing for giant trout. Yeah, Timon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was that was a good show. But almost all the fish that we film are rare, mm-hmm. uh, and we're also interested in finding big fish. You know, not not we want to find a a. a a fish that's, you know, the focus of the project was over six feet or 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Not all of these fish, the timing, we didn't find a time in that big, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're looking for a, an example of how big the, the fish that we're focused on can get. And so for Mongolia, we went over, usually we have a crew of five, so it'll be myself, two producers, and two cameramen, and the cameramen, usually there's one, uh, this might be different than the, uh, I'm not sure um, if you guys have a underwater cameraman. Yeah. So usually one of our camera, uh, man, uh, the cameraman would be above water and he would work, be doing the sound and all the interviews and above water stuff. And then would have someone in the water who could get the fish, uh, you know, in action. And that I, I really like that it made the show more dynamic. It also gave us a chance, you know, sometimes rather than fishing, we go diving.
2: Yeah, sure.
1: Or, uh, you know, we'll be using different types of fishing gear we can put the camera on the fishing gear and see what happens so i like i like having both
2: yeah for sure yeah we have uh and and we do some double duty too like usually our camera boat driver is also our underwater guy and our still photographer is also our drone guy and then we have two two cameras uh you know above water cameras all the time um but you know similar similar kind of deal not two producers though what do two producers do
1: One of the producers uh, figures out all the logistics, and the other producer is is in charge of the content. Mm -hmm. And so we would have – the shows aren't scripted, but we would have a rough, you know, outline. Uh, We're meeting different people, you know, talking to fishermen, talking to local scientists. And so each show has five acts, and we go through and learn about the fish, you know, usually from a different person in a different location in each of the acts. And then the last, you know, hope we all hope the last, you know, the last scene is, is with a big fish. Yeah. And so that Mongolia show, you know, just to give you an example of why I'm guessing that Mongolia show probably took about 18 days. It's uh, two days, you know, to get out there, two days to get back. Uh, time in, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to fish for time in, No, but Many there,
2: of my clients have, but I have not done it myself
1: they're hard to catch. I mean, they're not, you know, you don't go out and catch 20 in a day, you catch one in a day, you know, uh, especially if you're looking for a big one. So part of that time is just the time it takes to, to find the fish. Mm -hmm. And another example, the first show we ever did on Mekong giant catfish, a lot of these fish are critically endangered, almost extinct. That year that we filmed Mekong giant catfish, we filmed the only two fish that were caught that year is that i know about any you know anywhere and so that show that was a little bit of a unique case but that show took about five weeks to film and we've never taken that long since then but um you know that's the trouble that's the trouble you get into is if you pick if you want to find a a big fish that, that that no one ever sees it it takes a long time
2: yeah that's that's super interesting so who um Is it you that decides like where you're going and identifies the species and then where the best places are uh, for that? Because that seems like a major part of this whole puzzle there.
1: Yeah. So I I have my research at the university and the research at the university is is, you know, generating lists of these fish, uh, you know, gathering information about their ecology, their conservation status. And then based on those lists and that information, you know, where the where the fish are found uh we'll pitch maybe like let's say National Geographic said you know they want four shows or six shows. We'll usually pitch twelve shows mm. and uh then they'll pick the four you know that they that sound the most interesting to them so um and you know they tend they tend to pick the shows you know where there's a big fish where where we have pretty good chances of getting a big fish doesn't hurt if the fish have teeth yeah. or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and we even started doing, uh, shows, you know, I, I'm primarily focused in freshwater, but we filmed three shows in Florida, oh. uh, or close to Florida. We filmed one show on Goliath grouper, mm-hmm. one show on snakehead, which are in the canals yeah. and stuff in, in South Florida. And then we uh, filmed a really cool show or one that I really enjoyed on South Bimini on the, the hammerheads okay. that are out there. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, so those are three examples of shows that, you know, I knew about those stories from my research, but wasn't a a big focus of my research. But National Geographic said, hey, that sounds, you know, Goliath Grouper, great hammerheads. That sounds pretty good. Did you catch um, the
2: hammerheads or just dive with them?
1: Well, so we, every show is a little bit different. We typically will, you know, fish, you know, with fishing rods, but we'll also go out with scientists with in that show, we were with scientists and we were using both rod and reel and like a, what, a drum line. You know, when they have the big drum like like in Jaws uh, yeah, yeah. With, the, <laughs> with the real thick monofilament <laughs> line. Yeah. <laughs> and so we caught, I think we caught a big bull shark on rod and reel. And then the big hammerhead that we got was with that. That, that thick monofilament and that drum. Yeah. And,
2: uh, you know, the hammerheads had,
1: are no joke, man. Yeah. Well, the drum, <laughs> the drum, you know, we were as big, one of those big blue, I don't know if 50 or however big those mm-hmm. drums are. And it just, uh, just disappeared underwater. Yeah. And then we were looking around waiting for it to come back well, up.
2: That's some of the uh, most popular shows that we've ever shot is when, you know, the hammerheads come in for the tarpon migration and they, they eat them regularly. And uh, when there's a lot of activity, you know, we've, gone out there and and caught those hammerheads on rod and reel and the biggest one i think that we've gotten was around 13 and a half feet long and uh that's no joke that's a real that's a real fish yeah they're beautiful i mean they're amazing yeah they really are fish yeah they're amazing to watch them um eat a tarpon too uh it's not something that anyone who loves tarpon enjoys seeing but you can't help but marvel at how what a what an effective predator they are and how they just it, it just looks so effortless the way that they can get one, a, a super fast fish you know like a tarpon a really big fish and and they can just they get them man they get them i've yeah, seen them and they can them. be
1: they can be they can be pretty aggressive i you know, I've, I've seen what you're talking about which is when they're chasing tarpon and they are aggressive and they don't give up it this South Bimini where we were filming they they do what's called provisioning mm-hmm. uh where it basically means they feed them
2: yeah
1: uh in a controlled way and so the hammerheads are they don't stay there year-round they they come and they go mm-hmm. but they're used to the provisioning and so you can swim with them you, you go down there and you can swim with them and they don't pay any attention they're not you know the, those hammerheads I've seen queued in on tarpon I wouldn't want to jump in between a hammer yeah. you know a hammer yeah, they're, tarpon, they're, but
2: they're pretty serious yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: did you in, uh, it, did you in fit? South bimini
2: it's cool yeah uh, did you swim you know. off the end of that dock in that cage off the end of the dock at, at bimini where the bull sharks come in and they feed them right there they've got a shark cage just right off right off the dock it's probably no more than 12 feet deep there and you can get in that cage and they've been provisioning these fish all year long and these are massive big super aggressive bull sharks and then you get in with snuba and you're you're just right there right by the dock you don't have to go out in a boat you don't have to do anything and there are some of the most aggressive bull sharks i've ever seen in my life right there and tourists are just dropping in that cage man and i'm telling you if you stuck your arm out it would get ripped off um that (laughs) that is that is cool and you're in that perfectly clear water of of bimini but I did it with my daughter. I mean, it's a big cage, you know. And if you sit right in the middle, you're you're perfectly fine. There's no way that those sharks are getting in there. But it's the real deal, man. They're feeding them dwarf, dolphin carcasses right over your head and slamming them on the surface, and and those sharks get fed pretty much every day. And they're there. Um, it's but it's you know it's super exciting, especially if somebody like likes to do something like that. But they get seasick. You don't have to. You don't have to go out on a boat. You don't have to do anything. And you know you can even decide. Um, I'd love to go shark diving today, but I don't know if there are going to be any sharks out there. You walk to that dock and you're like, oh, there's, there's eight of them right here. So I'm getting in that cage or I'm not getting in that cage or you can just watch from land or whatever. But one, one of the, the native uh, uh has a nice little business going at the end of that dock.
1: That sounds great. I'll see if I can talk my son into doing that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good one. So a couple of fish I wanted to talk to you about uh, that that really have my attention is one. The arapaima is like absolutely number one on my list for a fish that I would like to, to catch on fly. That would be that would be really awesome. I've got a lot of friends that have done it. And uh, we've we've talked about the arapaima on on this show a number of times because I, I will make that trip one time. Uh, so Arapaima, where did you choose to go for the, for the Arapaima?
1: Yeah. Arapaima, we went to Brazil and we went to Guyana. Uh Guyana. Yeah. And I, I think both places are good. Uh, you know, there's a camp you've probably talked to people who, who've been to this camp. We didn't fly. So there's a camp in Guyana that, uh, is famous for, fly fishing mm-hmm. for arapaima yeah and so if you were interested in that 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 that's probably what i would recommend first guyana is a amazing it's probably one of my favorite spots in yeah. terms of the diversity of fish that you can catch mm-hmm. so you can catch arapaima uh all different kinds of catfish uh the, payara, the vampire mm-hmm. fish wolf fish which is the giant aymara that mm-hmm. uh so there's so many cool fish in guyana so if you I think if you were interested in Arapaima, you wanted to have a good trip, beautiful country, uh, amazing diversity of fish, really nice uh, kind of wildlife experience. You'll go out on a boat, camp out for a week. Uh, That that would be my my recommendation. We we did two shows um, in Guyana, one on the pyara vampire fish, and the other one on wolf fish, and uh, just it's an amazing country, uh, very wild. Uh, Lots of big fish, really fun fishing, white sand, white sand beaches on the river. The river's fairly clear. You can see what's going on. Mm -hmm. So really, really nice trips.
2: In terms of uh, like conservation and endangered species and that, where, where does the arapaima sit in your, in your, uh, in your opinion of threatened or are they in good shape or their habitat being kind of uh, uh, compromised or where, where do you think that? They are. Yeah.
1: So Arapaima is an interesting story and it's a positive, in my mind, it's a positive story. So historically up until like 10 or 20 years ago, Arapaima were overfished and you didn't see big ones anymore. Uh, They were kind of declared threatened, not, you know, maybe not on the edge of extinction, but populations were declining. Fish were getting smaller, which that's what you kind of see with fish before they go extinct Mm -hmm. as they start getting smaller and harder to find. Arapaima. One of the things that's kind of saved Arapaima is that they're not super migratory, and so they hang out in these floodplain ponds. And what's happened with Arapaima is communities have started to regulate uh, the harvest. Mm-hmm. Uh, basic, you know, and so they'll still harvest fish, but you can control how many Arapaima you have in an area and how big they get by controlling harvest. And so that's started to happen in a lot of communities and in those communities where there are fishing regulations, you see, you see the populations coming back. So that's actually been uh, a nice story. It's a good conservation story. There's local empowerment, uh, people kind of taking care of their resource opportunities for recreational anglers. So I would say, you know, in the, in the scale of, of, of being an endangered species, Arapaima is, is doing better than most. Good. Uh, a lot of the Asian species are are in in bad shape in the U.S. in the United States. Um, you know, we had historical drops in the late 1800s, early 1900s of a lot of our big freshwater fish in the U.S. But recently, some of those fish have been coming back, so that's a good sign too. Are,
2: are you referring to uh, the alligator gar at all, or alligator gar, lake sturgeon,
1: yeah, uh, American paddlefish to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Uh, green sturgeon to a certain extent we've you know what you see with a lot of these big fish that uh, you know they have these big big population declines and um you know that look and they look like they're headed to extinction and then if there's action taken you can kind of stabilize the population even if it's at a low level hmm. and so alligator gar for example they're they're not found as many places as, as they used to be but now populations in some areas, like Trinity River in Texas, populations are coming back.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, that seems that, that place seems to be really, you know, prolific with them. That, I mean, I, certainly what I see on Instagram, they, they catch a lot of them there. Um, and then one of my favorite videos that I've ever seen on uh, on Instagram is these pigeon eating uh, catfish with the wells catfish, and I saw that that you've done that as well. And uh, tell me about that fish. That is just, when I was a kid, I had this, um, you know, this fascination with largemouth bass that would eat frogs and then largemouth bass that would eat baby birds, like ducks, baby ducks. And I don't know why I had this fascination with it, but I mean, I just thought that was the coolest thing, that if you could find a bass that was big enough to eat a baby duck, that was the coolest. And I've always been fascinated with, like, catching one on, like, a a, duck bird lure right so even even the Travali that that eat the eat the birds and all of this it's just i don't know why it's so fascinating to me but it, it is and uh that wells catfish that eats those pigeons is an incredible predator because when you watch the videos it doesn't like go and attack one of these birds it sucks them in from quite a distance it seems like i mean like the you can even put it in slow motion. And you, you see that like the, the fish's lips are not breaking the surface, but yet this pigeon just gets shot underwater, like with this incredible force. And I just find that fish to be really, really cool. And uh, I'd love to know what, you, what, your, what your thoughts are on that one and how you identified that one as one that you wanted to go and, and shoot for the show.
1: Yeah, w- Wells catfish, it's, it's Europe's largest freshwater fish in Western Europe, it's been introduced. So it's not a fish that normally occurred there, but, uh, we talked with, uh, an angler in Germany. He said in the 1970s, he loaded 30 baby Wells catfish in the trunk of his VW, uh, bug and drove from Germany to Spain and released (laughs) these 30 catfish in the Ebro river in Spain. And ever since then, uh, the, population has been growing and growing this happens a lot with you know with uh non-native species but the wells catfish now is found throughout western europe and they keep getting bigger and more abundant the records keep uh you know getting broken for the the largest fish so in the ebro like for at first a couple years after release them you're getting 20 pound fish then 50 pound fish then 100 pound fish i think the record is up to I don't know if it's up, up to 300 yet, but they wow. just, they just keep getting bigger and bigger. And, uh, those pigeon eating fish are in a town in Southern France. And, uh, yeah, that, the I think it was on the Tarn river and there are Wells catfish in that river up to about nine feet long was the biggest one we saw. So maybe they're even bigger than that. Um, wow. you know, cause we probably, we probably didn't catch the biggest one. Uh, but, the, but they, watching them eat the pigeons, uh, what the, what the scientists we work with there told us was it's actually the medium size, like the four or five foot Wells catfish that are good at eating the pigeons. Mm-hmm. When they get bigger than that, they're too fat, I guess. Yeah. To
2: they can't get, get in shallow enough water, I guess. <laughs> they probably, yeah.
1: And so it makes sense. And the, and the pigeons are, are like, they, they don't, they're oblivious. So the pigeons are going down on this beach. You, you watch from a bridge up above. And so you sit up on the bridge and all the pigeons come down to bathe and you know, they're (laughs) making all this noise and getting their, you know, whatever pigeon smell in the water and the wells catfish come up and they have long barbels. So they, you see the whiskers coming out of the water (laughs) and you know, once they, one of the whiskers makes contact with one of the pigeons, they'll, they'll come up and they'll, like you said, they'll try to swallow it, but the, the wells catfish are not that good at it. And the pigeons are, you know, not paying attention. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of funny because it, 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 you know, they'll try five or 10 times before they get one and everyone's wow. splashing around. It's like, no, they don't know what's going on. So it's really fun to watch. I mean, you mentioned animals or fish that will eat other, other animals. You remind me of time in Mongolia. Mm. We've, seen a time washed up on shore that had an eight pound muskrat in its belly really that it seemed like maybe it swallowed that muskrat and maybe it, the muskrat scratched one of its gills or something. And I, I'm guessing that's what happened. So, something caused it to die and that the muskrat maybe was trying to get out and got one, yeah. sc- sc- scratch one of the gills. And then we've also, uh, encountered another five foot time washed up on shore with uh, it had swallowed a three-foot timon wow. and the tail of the fish it had swallowed was sticking out of its mouth, and it had also died, and its belly had ruptured. So mm. some of the, you know, the instincts that these fish have—they're amazing predators. Sometimes, uh, you know, amazing in terms of what they'll try to eat. Sometimes they're not successful.
2: Right. When you go back to the the wells catfish. Before it was uh, introduced into other places, was there any record of it getting the size that you're, you're talking about now? Yeah, so Wells
1: Catfish is, is one of those fish where there are stories of, I mean, I'm trying to remember what the, what the record is. I want to say 770 pounds. Wow. If you go back and you look at the old literature, but when you, when you start to dig into it, it it becomes pretty clear that those records are not you know they're they're not based on anyone actually seeing or weighing a right. fish it's kind of a story that someone told someone who's told someone else you know and these are stories from the 1800s or the 1700s so in eastern europe there are stories of what would be a world record fish the biggest fish in the world of these wells catfish but they're no verified Mm -hmm. um we don't start seeing like verified records until around 1900 and so there are no verified when i say verified i mean like a photo and with a a weight that you know you can tell Mm -hmm. someone actually weighed it rather than just made up a number right um so you start you start getting real documented records around 1900
2: and in those documented records are they consistent with what you're seeing now what i'm asking i guess really is if you get a a species that is introduced somewhere else where there's a lot more food and 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 they're they're a a predator that's never been seen before and they go in and they just start cleaning house um would that be possible for those to get to sizes that we've never seen before or would the species be kind of restricted to a genetic size like it's going to get to a certain length but then it's just going to get super fat but it's not, it's probably not going to get over this general. Yeah. I mean,
1: the answer is, is both. So,
2: and this is something that I talk about in the book,
1: but fish are limited uh, by their genetics, but with Wells catfish, excuse me, with Wells catfish, you know, the fish that have been introduced into Western Europe, they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. So we don't know. They haven't reached their potential yet. So we're sort of waiting to see, how big they're gonna get.
2: Yeah. Uh I would yeah, imagine so when you're eating pigeons pretty regularly, you're gonna get pretty <laughs> big pretty fast. I mean that seems yeah especially when the and pigeons they eat, carp, are really they eat those, super they big
1: big carp and uh yeah. They're interesting fish. They you know they're they're one of the only fish that uh you know we've caught and we'll be filming them or whatever. And they'll actually like turn around and bite you. Just mm. kinda they seem like they're mad. Yeah. Uh, so they'll be sitting there and we're like, oh, look at this beautiful, you know, Wells catfish, <laughs> you just turn around and they, you know, they don't, they have kind of the bristly teeth. They don't have, yeah, um, you know, sh- shark teeth or anything. So it just great. It just a, is, is a scrape, but they, uh, they can be pretty aggressive too.
2: Right, kind of like a snake, but you know, well, when you go, yeah. When, yeah. when you decide that it's time to shoot swordfish in the water, be extremely careful because those things are like that. They, they, they exhibit. Behavior that I've not seen with any other fish. They will absolutely attack a diver and uh, the way they attack is to stick that sword Straight through you and they can easily do it and I'm surprised more people don't get get killed We had a diver that got hit um, and we were using a, a little scooter, you know, one of those little uh, Underwater scooters GoPros all over it And if he hadn't have had that thing it would have it would have killed him it, it hit that and went in about eight inches and then broke the bill off but i mean that thing and i've got a video of it where the fish is just going along and it sees the diver and then turns and goes with everything it's got right at the diver not like an accidental thing like you might get with a with a sailfish or you know something that's just kind of you know trying to fight fight away from the boat or whatever and it might hit the diver (laughs) not or or like a mackerel that that's shaking its head and his mouth is open, and somebody gets cut. You know, it's like, you know, it wasn't trying to bite you. It was just shaking its head, and you happened to be in the way. That's not the case. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this fish turned and attacked the diver, and it's, it's very dangerous. Um, yeah. But that one. It's
1: interesting. I mean, it's interesting that some fish seem to know that yeah. they, some of these big fish know that they can hurt you or that they have, sure. a, you know, a weapon. And some of the alligator gar, for example, that are it's my experience with alligator gars that they're totally harmless so the worst you know the the only real way they're going to hurt you is if you try to bring a big one on the boat and lands on your foot or start struggling because you took it in the boat Mm -hmm. breaks your leg or something but yeah some fish recognize that they have you know that sword or sharp teeth or whatever and other fish even scary as they might look are are pretty harmless
2: yeah i mean and and some are I, I call them gentlemen like they've they've decided, OK, you win. I got it. I've, I've given up. And and then you handle them perfectly. They'll give you one good one good shake. And then it's like, OK, they'll lay they'll lay perfectly, perfectly still for you to get the hook out and let them go or whatever you're going to do with them. But uh, others are, are not that way at all. So um, the book, how uh, how long did it take you to write the book? The book took ten years. Ten to years, write.
1: <laughs> with, 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 with even with COVID. <laughs> yeah, so with COVID, with the co-author, it was a you know it was a obviously it took a long time, and we I, I've been doing this work uh, for for a long time now, almost almost twenty five years, and really started focusing on large fish around two thousand five. We started doing the shows in two thousand seven, and so the book you know, the shows, uh, focus on one fish, you know, we're not really able to get into a lot of detail. We focus on some basic biology basic angling, uh, but we don't really tell in-depth stories. And so the, the book was a way, you know, I, I think it's one of the only books that talks about these big freshwater fish on a global scale. And we really tried to tell the whole story from the, you know, from beginning to end, it starts in the Mekong where I started my work. And then we go through the U S and the Europe through Asia, Africa. So it's a, it's a global, uh, adventure. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that it, that it took such a long time to write. It wasn't a, you know, just sit down and, um, hang it out. We, we were going out in the field and, we were taking trips as we were as we were writing Mm
2: -hmm. and over the course of the 10 years that you're thinking about writing this book and actually starting to write it um did your opinion change on on kind of what the book would look like i'm sure this kind of evolved into something different than maybe when you started uh with all these different experiences and what you're what you're uh you know seeing and and coming into contact with firsthand uh how did that how did that kind of shape into what it is today Yeah. It, you know, it it was a process. I think it was also a process with the monster fish
1: shows. You know, I don't know what your experience has been fishing in different. I mean, I think you fished all over, but you know, for me, when I go to it, it's always a learning experience. Um, when I go to a, a new spot, um, if it's an area that where I haven't done research before I'm meeting people for the first time, I'm seeing the fish for the first time, I'm learning how to fish for it, you know, what its behaviors are, where it hangs out. So all of this has been a learning experience. The way that the book is structured is it starts with that world record fish in 2005 in Thailand. And then we sort of go through, Okay, you know, this question, what is the world's largest freshwater fish? And talk about freshwater fish generally go to the Amazon, the where we have the highest diversity of fish in the world and, you know, then go to North America, learn about issues in North America. So it starts with sort of an introduction of these fish. What are they? Where are they found? Uh, then we go into the threats, some of the challenges that they face then toward, you know, get closer to the end of the book, talking about conservation solutions and the future. So it's, a, you know, it's this, it's this arc of trying most of these fish, and I would say freshwater, ge- freshwaters generally are, they f- they're facing a lot of challenges. So we wanted to be clear eyed about that. We wanted to, um, introduce these fish. What are they? Talk about how amazing they are. And then go, go on this global adventure that introduces people to all of these different fish, the threats they face and Hey, what can we do to, to protect them?
2: So, uh, that's what I'm most interested in. Do you, do you, have you come across solutions? Do you think there are solutions to protect these fish?
1: I mean one of the big take-home messages is that fish, these fish are doing better. You know traveling around the world, you, you get a global perspective and w- without fail, these fish are doing well where the people in that area have taken it upon themselves to manage those fish. So that's like, you have two options. There can either be no people. So you can go to the middle of the Amazon rainforest, even in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, there are people But you can either go somewhere where people are excluded and you, you might find these fish there, or you go to places where people have decided, okay, we're going to keep our rivers healthy. We're going to keep our fisheries healthy. And that's where, where you see these fish. And so for example, like, I'd be curious to hear about your opinions of the situation of Florida, you know, after visiting Florida and filming in Florida, I'm coming, I, I see Florida from perhaps a different perspective where Florida is one of the only places in the world where I've, that I've been to that has sawfish Mm -hmm. that has Goliath grouper that has some of these big sharks that are still, you know, you can still go out there and see. So I know that the issues, for example, Florida are much more complicated than, than I can appreciate. But as, as someone who's been all over the world, Florida has amazing natural resources for sure. And I think that's because people in Florida care. And there's a lot of people who who care about fishing. There are a lot of good research being done. And so as I know that that, you know, it can be messy at times, but it's a you know what still exists in Florida is absolutely incredible.
2: Right, and there's you, you're exactly right, and it is uh, it is really really incredible, and a lot of it boils down to um, research and law enforcement and uh, setting limits and seasons and things like that, and those are all super super important. But another thing that that is common uh, a common thread is that. Um, fishing is is giant tourism. There are billions of dollars associated with those fish. Seeing the the fish that you that you mentioned, all of them, all of them are important. And I think that a lot of people in the state of Florida understand that the water needs to be clean, the fish need to be prolific, and and we need fishermen. come down here and i think that when you look at a fish like an arapaima or something like that and and a small community can realize that there are great tourism dollars to be gained by embracing this fish and not killing it that that one fish is worth you know potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars to the community if it can be caught five or six times right like there are anglers that come down there they're willing to pay whatever they don't care what it costs. I mean literally people will travel the globe to add another species to their to their list and they don't need to kill that species. They're happy to release that species and they're happy to to put their money into that community and come year after year after year after year and tell all their friends about it. And I think that that's a really really important thing. I wonder if you covered that in your book about like how tourism and you know sport fishing catch and release can not only benefit these fish but make them in a you know benefit the communities in a way that they see that this is a sustainable resource that once was thought of as just you know a meal or not even a meal for the community like they're catching this fish and putting it on a truck and sending it to the city like what what, what did you uh what are your thoughts on that yeah 100 percent. i mean we
1: talk a lot about catch and release in the book and you have Examples of that in Florida, with these communities with arapaima, with taiman, both in Mongolia. Also, there's another species of taiman in Europe where fishing clubs are protecting these uh, rivers in kind of the last um, places where the European taiman or European hucho is is found, um, where these fishing clubs are practicing catch and release and protecting these rivers. So you see that all over the world, you know, where some group of advocates you know a lot of times it's anglers it can be sometimes it's scientists um, people who care about the environment have taken upon themselves to yeah to in a lot of cases practice catch and release keep the river or water clean and and protect the fishery another interesting example is with lake sturgeon so lake sturgeon in lake winnebago up in wisconsin that's actually not catch and release. That's a, I don't know if you've ever seen that or heard about that. It's a, a spear, you know, they're yeah, yeah. It's ice fishing. Right. It's yes, spear, they use the, that. P- these pitchforks through the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a harvest fishery of a fish that can live up to 150 years old. So you have to be very careful managing a harvest fishery, fishery where you're taking those big old fish out of the system. But they've been researching that population and protecting that population and they're spawning rounds and everything for the last like 70 or 80 years. And that's a a big success story too. So I think that through line is, you know, just the places where I still see big fish are the places where, you know, people um, where there's good science going on, where you have advocates for the fish advocates for a healthy environment. And people have taken upon themselves to you know, protect the fish.
2: Yeah, well, that's really cool. Well, I know that we're a little bit short on time today, so I want to be respectful of that. And you've got this book, Chasing Giants. Where can people find your book?
1: Yeah, so there are two places to get in the book. Uh, people can either pre-order on Amazon, just search uh, Chasing Giants, Zeb Hogan, and it's available on Amazon. It's going to be out in print on April 25th. Or, if people want to get it maybe a little bit uh, more quickly and more directly, the book was published by my university press. It's called the University of Nevada Press. Cool. So, Chasing Giants, University of Nevada Press, Google that. It'll take you right to a site where you can get the book. And I just got my copy today. So, it's it's available. There it is. So, i great. Would love it if. Uh,
2: what does that feel like? 10 years out? of work just, just sitting in your hands <laughs> yeah. in a nice, neat package yeah, with a bow around it? It
1: doesn't weigh of work but uh yeah i think people will really enjoy it it's it's a kind of a one book where people can really get introduced to all of these amazing incredible big fish all over the world and some of the you know where they are threats they face and and what people are doing to protect them
2: very cool well thanks for coming on today i really appreciate it i learned a little bit about the wells catfish for sure that one is also on my list with the arapaima I'd like to do that. Do people fish for them there, or are they just watch me? Oh pigeons? yeah.
1: no. You those those are two good fish to have on your list okay. because both of those fish you can go to a beautiful location and within a couple of days uh, you you can get well, each of those. So it's 100% I hundred w- would... percent
2: certain that I'm using a pigeon for bait. So hope that's <laughs> yeah. hope that's legal. Uh, anyway, okay, all right. Thanks, Zeb. I appreciate it. And you guys go check out his book, Chasing Giants, and also also his show. Uh, very nice show on National Geographic um monster fish very good uh so anyway thanks i appreciate it and uh we'll do it again one day thanks so much all right thank you see you